Good to see everybody. Thank you for praying for my wife and I. We had a great time in Southern California. We had a bumpy start to our vacation. Uh, our luggage got lost. But uh, everything else worked out okay. Um, let's see here. What happened to my PowerPoint presentation? We're off to a marvelous start here. I'm using PowerPoint uh, today because we're going to be doing an introduction. There we go. You guys see that? Okay, good. Ooh, good. Great. Good to see everybody. Welcome to church. I'm so excited to uh, launch into this new uh, season uh, of exposition in our church here. And to tackle a book like Isaiah has taken a lot of a lot of prayer, a lot of contemplation, a lot of thought process, um, a lot of meditation. It's quite daunting. Uh, I recall the words of John Piper when he said he would approach the Mount Everest of the Book of Romans, and year after year he would look up at the peaks and the ridges and he would walk away because he thought, I'm not ready. <laughs> and I know what he means by that. And uh, if Romans is a Mount Everest, then I, I don't know what you call uh, the, the book of Isaiah. It's I mean, it's about five times longer than Romans, so what, what would that make it? You know, I don't know, K2, or did I just mention the biggest mountain? Everest is big. But you know what I mean. It's a massive task, and so part of what I want to do today is kind of, uh, well, there's three things that I want to do today. I want to walk through a introduction of the book. I want to talk a little bit about the game plan, uh, what we're going to do with the book of Isaiah, and then I want to sort of launch us into uh, the theology of the book of Isaiah with uh, looking at one of the chapters in Isaiah, which is chapter 6. And so that's the way that we are going to progress. Now, as you can see there from my first slide, uh, I've entitled the book of Isaiah the book of kings in a sense, only because of the introduction. The introduction says that this is the vision that Isaiah received during the reign of four kings, uh, namely Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So in that sense, Isaiah is the prophet of the kings. And we'll see that as we go throughout the book, how often Isaiah interacts with the kings. By the way, you want to jot down or make a mental note, if you want kind of a background to the book of Isaiah, you want to be reading 2 Kings chapter 15 through chapter 20. Uh, that kind of gives you the historical situation, biblically, of what developed, what happened, what went on, and what led to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is mentioned in Second Kings and his entrance into the royal court and the way that he would interact uh, with the nation in that sense. And it's actually, that whole section there in Second Kings is also captured in the book of Isaiah itself later on in chapters, I think, 37 or 6 and following. But uh, So that becomes really relevant. Those, those are like chapters uh, that you want to be like constantly reading and checking in with so that you get a, a good grasp uh, on this book. So what I want to do is kind of give us a little bird's eye view because, uh, let's face it, we are not good at remembering the historical situation of the books of the Old Testament, let alone the prophets. Why? Because it's very complicated. It's very complex. We are talking about millennia of time. We are talking about century after century. We're talking about king after king, and then there's kingdoms, and then there's a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then what happened to the other tribes of Israel? And so we have a lot to talk about. 
And, uh, but that is important. Uh, it's important for us to just kind of, you know, 21st century Christians to go back a millennia BC and start kind of work, wrapping our, our mind around what is happening when Isaiah begins to prophesy to Israel and ultimately what does it matter to me today? How, you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but a lot of this is going to be so that we understand that I'm preaching the book of Isaiah out of a solid conviction that the book of Isaiah speaks to us as Christians in the new covenant today in the 21st century, in your life, in your daily life. I believe the book of Isaiah has immense truth uh, to teach us. So, but we need to do some of the heavy lifting up front. So let's, uh, let's start with a little presentation here. By the way, y'all be very proud of me. I put together a PowerPoint presentation. You know, Russell, we did a finance meeting yesterday and the PowerPoint presentation. So don't laugh, Russell. You're not allowed to mock me while I'm doing this, okay? His PowerPoint presentations are elaborate, okay? And we are blessed to have him uh, doing what he's doing. Mine are simple. <laughs> Mine are cut and paste. I went to Google and got some stuff, okay? <laughs> I'm not starting from scratch here, but I, I did what I had to do, okay? So uh, here we go. There we are. And then I got this thing, which I think is working. What do I do here? Lynn? Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, that's pretty weak. I wanted something to blind like a aircraft, you know? Can you guys see that little? Okay, good. You guys understand what this uh, first slide is giving us, okay? Here's creation down at the bottom, Adam and Eve, just to give us a very simple, uh, very general, broad timeline. So we go from creation all the way to the, to the uh, 6th century B.C. Remember, we're counting backwards in a sense. So when you're in the 500s B.C., that's called the 6th century, okay? Just like today, we're in 2000s. This is called the 21st century. So this is the 6th century B.C., but from there... Go from creation, the fall, we enter into the time period of Abraham, which this is 2,000 years before Christ, the time of the patriarchs. We enter into the 400 years of captivity in Egypt, right around here. That gives birth to the Exodus here, so enters the prophetism of Moses. Uh, If any of you all are interested, uh, Moses becomes the paradigm for all future prophets in the Bible. Uh, Anyway, so here's the Exodus event. Exodus event becomes sort of the redemption of Everything that happens throughout the Bible in terms of Old Testament redemption, what do I mean by that? Well, when God speaks of of redeeming his people, for example, in the Psalms or the prophets, he's always pointing to the Exodus. And so that's a really important major event to keep. And then we enter the conquest under Joshua. This is when they go into the land. 1500 BC or something like that. Then we enter into the judge, the period of judges. And so here we're thinking of people like Deborah and Samson and other, uh, other judges that judged, basically ruled and governed the nation uh, of the kingdom of Israel at the time. Now notice here, you have at this period of time, a millennia BC, you have a united kingdom. Here we have the prophetic call of Samuel. And what happens in Samuel's prophetic call is that he becomes the anointer of the king. So he is called in order to anoint the king, i.e. David, who is the son of God and who becomes typological of Jesus, of course. And then he gives birth to Solomon. The reason Solomon is a, is a, a big pillar in redemptive history is because Solomon's contribution to redemptive history is that he builds the temple. 
And so right around here, you have the building of the temple, but you also have at this period in time a united kingdom. This becomes very important in the study of Isaiah because in Isaiah, what you have is over and over references to the kingdom, but you have a reference to Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So that's like what you've got to keep your eye on there. The kingdom divides right after the reign of Solomon. Solomon's reign is essentially a peaceful time, but immediately afterwards, Israel enters into a great turmoil where they start infighting to the point where they can no longer bear to stand one another. And so Judah and Israel split, and they become mortal enemies. Uh, very interesting, right? Now, this uh, red, uh, this red uh, uh, pointer here, this, this uh, uh, arrow, I inserted that myself. You're supposed to applaud, you know. Uh, <laughs> I inserted this red arrow. That red arrow symbolizes Isaiah. This is when Isaiah comes into the fray and begins to prophesy just prior to the Assyrian exile. Now, we'll look at this in other slides here in a second, but there are two major players during the Isaiah's time period, and therefore in the time period of the book of Isaiah, which is Assyria and Babylon. These are the two big threats to the people of God. So you're going to have 30 chapters on Assyria. And then you're going to have from chapter 40 and onward, you're going to have the major threat, the bigger threat, which becomes Babylon. Now the Babylonian exile is uh, extremely important for what is going on. And during this time, Josiah is king over uh, over Israel. So, and then you have the exile. This is when the people of God are actually taken into captivity into Babylon. And then in 538 or so, 538, the good thing about 538 is that among the scholars, 538 is pretty universally accepted as the time period in which they return from exile. So that's important. That is when the remnant returns. Now that's bird's eye view. We can stay there for a little bit longer. I try not to flash this in anybody's face. Uh, this is a little bit more complicated, only because here, follow with me. Uh, here's 500 again, right? And here's a uh, thousand years BC. Now here we zero in in the time period of David and Solomon, and at that time again the kingdom is united: Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and here we have the corresponding kings in each kingdom. So you have Rehoboam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, uh, all these guys. And then the blue boxes are the prophets. So these are the prophets that come to play during the reign of these kings and their corresponding kingdoms. And so that's important because Elijah comes in. He begins uh, to prophesy to Israel and establishes the school of the prophets. Elijah becomes part of that. And basically, Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha carries on the mantleship of Elijah. You know that. This is the time period of Jezebel. This is when Elijah was on the run. A lot of tumultuous things are happening here. Elijah slaughters, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of false prophets. Hardcore apologetics back then. And, uh, and then, um, so you see it here. Uh, Israel and Judah are now divided during this time period, 800 or so B.C. And again, this is where Isaiah comes in. Now notice what's going on here. What's going on here is that Isaiah prophesies for a pretty lengthy time. Probably his, prof his prophetic career probably spanned around 50 years or so. Isn't that amazing? You open the book of, uh, of uh, Isaiah, you, re you realize that the time that it took for Isaiah to see all of those visions, to receive all that revelation, and to utter all of those oracles, 50 years of time. 
It wasn't a quick thing. And then you see Micah here, little Micah. He's a little bit smaller than Isaiah. That's not because he was shorter. That's just because he prophesied for a less period of time. But notice, you overlap Hosea with Isaiah and Micah. So these are kind of contemporary prophets, but they're prophesying in different locations to different situations and to a different part of the people of God. Hosea is concerned with Israel, and uh, Micah and Isaiah are concerned with Judah, or even as the book starts, uh, the vision which, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So uh, Jerusalem, because is, obviously Jerusalem is the capital, it's the, it's the main city. But uh, here's uh, the, the prophetic career of Isaiah again. And so I would say, is there any questions? But this is not a Sunday school class. Uh, and so I get to kind of just keep going. And then down here, you see as the centuries roll on, so try, try to give yourself a better understanding of all this. During this period of time, this is when Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, you know, these kind of, and then look at here. Then you have Zechariah prophesying right around 6th century BC. And then you have uh, Malachi here later on uh, in 430 BC. He begins his prophetic career, and at the close of Malachi's career, that ends the Old Testament period, and we enter into 400 years of what's known as the intertestamental period of time. Some people call it the years of silence because there's no revelation coming, okay? So again, this is kind of a, kind of zoom in a little bit more. The reason why this is important for a couple of reasons, it just kind of shows you again the kings that are involved. This graph is not all that accurate because Isaiah's Prophetic ministry should really kind of extend a little bit over to Uzziah, but that's okay because it says he died right when he was called. So I understand why they put it there. But uh, you see in the red, there are two important, important things that will come into play as we exposit the book. Number one, notice what this says, the high point in terms of wealth. And so what happens is right prior to Isaiah's ministry, Jerusalem is, uh, you know, Israel, the kingdom, both Israel and Judah are both living, living high on the hog. Things are good. The economy is good. Uh, the nation is safe. Jobs are plentiful. Uh, there's plenty of wool and flax, and, and, and there's plenty of uh, uh, agriculture, and uh, the army's built up. Everything seems to be on the up and up, but what is going on here is that Isaiah comes in like a like a battling ram. He comes in like a wrecking ball to tell Israel that despite all of its material and financial and, and uh, uh, national prosperity at this time, what it's doing with its prosperity is not pleasing to God. So think about that. Here's the nation doing what it's doing, living the way that it's living, and God intrudes into the kingdom to let them know, hey, I am not pleased with the way that you're living. And so he sends Isaiah to expose that with the prosperity that God had given them, all they're doing with that prosperity is sinning and apostatizing and becoming prideful and arrogant and ultimately idolatrous. So uh, there's a lot I can say. Idolatry becomes a very key sin in the history of, of Israel. Uh, idolatry is, in a sense the high point of the breach of the covenant. Once Israel adopts false God, then God says, Lo ami, you are not my people. Okay? And he, because he warned them in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26, when he established the old covenant, he warned them not to worship other gods. If they did so, that would amount to covenant breaking. And so uh, idolatry becomes very, very crucial here. Okay, let's go on. 
Oh yes, just to give you a little bit of a grasp of what's going on uh, geographically at this time, the first wave of threat to Israel at this time is Assyria. And so we're talking about the Assyrian kingdom, but look how big it is. Look how huge, I mean, here's, here's this little plot of land. Why is everything always about this little plot of land, even today, right? Anyway, I don't want to get all dispensational on you guys, but four hoofs of the apo- you know, apocalypse or whatever. The blood moons. <laughs> I had to get that out. <laughs> but it's always about this land. This little slab of territory, this little geographical territory right here is always the crux of the matter. Everybody always wants it. They always want dominion of it. They always want it. Why? Because it is central to all the trade routes that connect all these continents together. And so Israel is a major, major port of entry for the entire ancient Near Eastern world. And so everyone wants it. Everybody wants to dominate it, okay? And back then, you know, it was rich. It was fertile. It was... Uh, uh, you know, it was booming with uh, fertility and agriculture and everything else. So it became kind of the envy of the nations in many ways. And so what happens is, is because of their prosperity, God is going to warn Israel that there is a threat coming. It is looming over you by way of Assyria. In Assyria, if you don't repent... I am going to allow Assyria to descend upon you, and the first place that's going to fall is Damascus. Damascus was a major stronghold for Israel. It was the place that kind of protected them. It's kind of like in the region of the Golan Heights. They were up on the hills and the mountains. They can see their enemies coming. And so if the Golan Heights falls, that's a big problem, you see? So, so this, is, this is why this is really important, this territory right here. By the way, this is like where ISIS is operating today. When we were in Israel, we went up here and we overlooked all of Syria. And while we were there, we actually heard explosions going on. We're like, okay, time to get back on the tour bus. Let's go. <laughs> it makes it fun. But anyway, this makes it exciting. That's what, that's what memories are all about. <laughs> so, but anyway, so you see how big Assyria here. Assyria extended all the way down here. How many times have you heard? Well, look at it also. goes down into Egypt. And what this is saying is not that they essentially had control of all of this at all times, but they geopolitically were connected here. They had, they had their tentacles there as well, okay? So look at this. Uh, what happens in the book of Isaiah is that even though uh, Israel does not repent, Judah does not repent in the south, and though Israel falls in the north to Assyria, God mercifully, he mercifully withholds his wrath using Assyria as his hammer of judgment. He withholds his wrath from Judah, whoops, and he gives them time to repent. Do they repent? No. And because they don't repent, boom, you thought Assyria was bad. I'm going to allow something even deeper into the fertile crescent here. In other words, the reason why, see how this kind of loops down? This is, you ever heard in the Bible where it says, God will take you captive beyond the great river, beyond the river Euphrates? Because it's saying they're going to take you captive, put you in chains, and, and put you in meat hooks, and drag you all the way through the desert until you pass the river Euphrates into captivity. And so, this is where Daniel's at. 
This is where Daniel begins to prophesy. This is where Daniel and his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, this is where they go into the furnace and they tell the king of Babylon, we will not worship you or your idol or your, your image. You can do whatever you want to us. And so think about that. Uh, I, I, I said somewhere, I think last couple sermons, I believe Daniel and his friends are like types, shadows. They're prefiguring uh, tribulation martyrs in the end who have to face the Antichrist. I think that's what the king of Babylon ultimately is if you follow the thinking of the book of Revelation. But anyway, so amazing, right? Absolutely amazing. And so look at here. Babylon takes everything. They take Judah. They take Jerusalem. They devastate the city. They leave it in ruins. It's utter devastation beyond your wildest dreams. Uh, people are slaughtered in the streets. I mean, all of that, okay? So this is, uh, this is just to kind of wrap our brain around this a little bit. That's the land. This is uh, what you really need to be oriented in. This is in the back of your Bible or the front of your Bible somewhere in your maps. You're going to see all this way up here at the very top. You see this here? Here is Damascus, okay? Golan Heights is kind of going to be like right here looking through there, okay? And then you have, uh, you know, you have Israel right here to the north. So Israel... Uh, during the time of the Assyrian threat, Israel was kind of a buffer to Assyria, right? So remember, Assyria is coming from the north. Here it is. And this is the way they always go. Notice they don't go this way. Why? Too much desert. You'll die. You can't cross there. <laughs> you won't make it. Okay, so you have to go this way around the routes where there's going to be you know, shade and <laughs> cooler temperatures and you know, all of that. But uh, because they're always coming from the north, Israel served as a buffer to these threats. And so Judah and Israel, even though they hated each other at times, they would make certain geopolitical compromises and get along and, hey, you protect us and we'll give you this, you know. Exactly like what goes on today. Exactly like what goes on today. Nothing really different. Uh, and so, yeah, so, but this is our focus. So this is where Israel, uh, where, where, uh, excuse me, where Isaiah is at. This is where he's prophesying. Uh, this is where uh, Isaiah probably lived, was in Jerusalem, uh, somewhere very near to the royal palace at the time and the temple. Uh, the reason why that's important is because unlike many of the other prophets, Isaiah, like I mentioned before, Isaiah was a cultured man. He, he, was, a, he, 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 was, he was in the mix. He was involved in the culture, in the politics. He knew what was city life was like. He knew what was, uh, he, you know, uh, you take Amos, for example, the prophet Amos. He is diametrically opposite to Isaiah. Amos is just this shepherd boy tending his flocks in Tekoa, right? And God calls him. He, he doesn't know what's going on in the city. You see, he's a farmer, basically. Not Isaiah. Isaiah is right involved in all this. And, you, and we know that, or scholars know that, because, like I said, his proximity... Uh, to the people that are in power, they uh, they go out and seek him out, and then he comes into the royal courts and makes his declarations, basically preaches his sermons to the rulers of the kings and the, the different politicians and the priests in Israel. So that becomes important. Now, there are three, essentially three time periods in Isaiah. There is chapter 1 through 39, and that represents Isaiah's actual lifetime. That's when he was alive during the prophesying of the events of what you see there in those chapters. In chapter 40 to 55, this is going to speak of the exile in Babylon. This is a future time period of which Isaiah did not partake. And then he also prophesies, 56 to 67, he prophesies of the return of the people back to the land. 
we can't get into any of the theology right now, but we will, (laughs) but we will. And uh, so this is, it's interesting, isn't it? So first line, draw a line here, if you would. This is, uh, this has been a concern for scholars uh, and basically this, let's call it this dividing line. This is a, a cause for a great divided, dividing line in scholars, Old Testament scholars, what we could call Isaiahic scholars. They divide over what? Prophecy. Do you believe in prophecy? They don't. The liberal scholars don't. So what they have concluded is that 1 through 39 is one book, and 40 to 66 is another book. They call it Isaiah 2. And what they're saying is that either some other author or a group of redactors compiled the writings of Isaiah, and they're responsible ultimately for the, for the compilation of that book. In other words, they're trying to account for how can Isaiah prophesy so accurately about the future. They don't like to just say, well, he prophesied. Uh, it's called biblical prophecy, right? But if you're, a natural, if you're committed to naturalism as a scholar, you don't believe in prophecy because you believe in an anti-supernatural world in which, in a closed system, uh, supernatural events cannot happen. And so we just, you know, so this dividing line here, uh, the problem with this is if you're liberal, uh, it's you against Jesus, because Jesus quoted out of both sections of Isaiah, I think it's John chapter 12 where he quotes out of both sections in Isaiah, and he says in both sections, as Isaiah said. So if those scholars cannot say with Jesus, as Isaiah says in these chapters, you got a problem. you got to face God on judgment day. So anyway, uh, so here we go. These are the ten major sections of the book of Isaiah. The reason I throw this up there for you guys is not because you necessarily need to write them all down, but you can if you'd like. I don't know if it'll be up there long enough for you to do that, but you can try. You can come and see me afterwards, I suppose, if you need to. Uh, the reason I throw this up there is because, praise the Lord, there is some very clear uniformity to the book of Isaiah. In other words, I took this from uh, basically a compilation of commentaries that I have, and they are all generally universally united on this arrangement of the book of Isaiah and what transpires here. You see, and so now already we're beginning to see the relevance of this book for us. Now notice uh, this here. Uh, chapters 1 through 5 is really the intro to the whole book. Then I give you in parentheses what it's about. And then chapter chapter 6 is kind of on its own. Because chapter 6 is like that. It has nothing to do with chapter 5, and it has really nothing to do with chapter 7. It's just kind of like in the middle of that. Why? Because that's where Isaiah receives his prophetic call. Okay? And so, 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 so this is interesting because it also suggests that in the career of the prophet, 40, 50 years of prophesying, he went back into his prophecies, his books, and he arranged it in a way that is thematic. So there was a thought process that went, it was not all strictly chronology in terms of how it's arranged. He took his calling and he inserted it in the book precisely where it needs to go for thematic and doctrinal and theological reasons. Okay, so there's a lot of, lot, lot of stuff like that that goes into that. Notice here so much of the emphasis here on the nations. Yahweh and the nations. Israel trusts in the nations. All these things. This is, becomes important because what happens is, you know, Yahweh triumphs over the nations. Why? Because 
throughout, uh, one of the major temptations for the nation is to trust in other things other than Yahweh. So it becomes a test of faith. It's like, what is Israel going to trust in? All of its turmoil, all of its impending crisis and doom and, and uh, threatenings that, you know, like the end of the world is coming. What are they holding on to? What are they hoping in? Well, if, you know, the, they start trusting in the other nations, uh, that's, not, that's not trusting in the Lord. And so if you want to make your own political maneuvers behind the scenes because you think Egypt will protect you or the Arameans will protect you from the Babylonians, and so you start making certain compacts, certain covenants with other nations, and the covenants and those contracts, those treaties that you make with other nations, guess what they entail? They entail idolatry. We'll protect you against the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We'll join with you in a coalition, but... We want a temple of our God and we want to place it right out the outskirts of Jerusalem and Bethel. How about that? Right? And does Israel do that? Yes, they do. They allow pagans to come in and to erect pagan temples to their gods and sacrifice to their gods in the land of promise. That's the problem. And what is the land of promise? The land of promise is a type. It is typological of heaven. And so that which on earth is a type of heaven does not contain idolatry. So God always wants the land to be cleansed. Anyway, we can go on, and we will. We'll, we'll get deep into that. But look at the messianic contours of the book. Beginning in, I mean, it's all throughout. I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not like we don't get to Jesus until chapter 40. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> He's all throughout the entire book. But in chapter 40 to 48... We have a focus on the messianic servant of the Lord. You know the servant of the Lord that's mentioned in Isaiah 53, right? Well, the servant theology, God, Yahweh's servant, that begins all the way back in chapter 40. Okay? And the emphasis there is the servant of the Lord and how he relates to the, the threat of Babylon, and then the servant of the Lord and how he relates to Zion, their heavenly hope, and then on and on and on. And so there you go. Isaiah chapter 6, the message of the book, uh, Isaiah's theology of the beatific vision. What I'm saying is that these are some of the major themes that you find throughout the book of Isaiah. That wasn't too painful, right? It's good, right? Kind of gives us a little bird's eye view of what's going on historically, geographically, and everything else. Okay, now what I want to do is kind of exit out of here. There we go. And uh, try not to break this. There we go. And I um, want to tackle a couple of concerns that we might have. How are we going to approach the book of Isaiah? 66 chapters. You going to be here till I'm 80? <laughs> you know? I don't think so. I don't want to be here till well, I mean, I don't know, but I'm just saying, like, I don't want to be preaching Isaiah that long. You know, I love Isaiah, but... I don't want to be in there for 30 years. It's easy to do that. Let me tell you. I believe if you went verse, you know, John MacArthur style, verse by verse, you can be in Isaiah for 30 years. I mean, easily. We're not going to do that. Realistically, as I've mapped it out at a realistic pace, we're looking at five to six years. That's okay. My heroes preach like that. John MacArthur took eight years in the book of Luke. Hey, man. I'm not even taking eight years in Isaiah, so my conscience is fine. <laughs> I want to talk about our approach to the book of Isaiah for a number of reasons. Number one, I want to challenge us in terms of our view of the book of Isaiah. 
you understand that by undertaking this book on Sunday, the, the Lord's Day preaching in our church, we automatically belong to a great minority of churches. You know how many pastors today are preaching the book of Isaiah? I went on to uh, Sermon Audio. I couldn't find hardly anybody doing it. And then when they're doing it, it's usually like a Sunday school class they're doing or something like that. But no one, And so I sat there and I, you know, I took my frustration out of my friend Joseph Urban. You know, it's like, Joseph, where's the pastors? Come on, they're spine up, you know, like preach the Old Testament already, you know. But on a, on a serious note, the Reformers taught us the doctrine of sola scriptura. What does that mean? It means that Scripture is the final authority for faith and practice for the believer, right? But they also taught the doctrine of tota scriptura, which means they believe Scripture is sufficient, that everything that it gives us is sufficient for the Christian life, okay? And part of that is that we can profit from every part of of the Word of God. So one of the things that Isaiah has done for me, I hope it will do it for you, is that it will challenge you as a Christian to profit from the Word of God and not to be simply New Testament Christians. Uh, Listen, one of the reasons I did this is because I believe biblical theology has taught me this, that all Scripture is Christian Scripture. That we can go to any part of our Bibles today, whether we're in Leviticus or Revelation, and we can, we can benefit from the theology of the Word of God no matter what because it's inspired of God. Because Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is profitable for us, for reproof, for instruction and correction and righteousness, so that the man of God can be fully adequate, lacking nothing. And so I believe I can go to the book of Isaiah and that I can find there contemporary, meaning for our time, relevant, profitable, manageable, applicable, true theology. But it also raises the question, how are we going to interpret the book of Isaiah? You know, some of the stuff I listened to online was, 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 was sort of this. Either there was a heavy emphasis on prophecy, and so everybody wants to get to the prophetic literature and show the prophecies and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. And that kind of was the emphasis. Or there was a heavy emphasis on history. And so a lot of the messages and the sermons are bogged down with historical details. And so that, to me, is important. And we'll do some of that. But that, to me, is not the way I want to approach the book of Isaiah. I want to approach the book of Isaiah mainly from a redemptive historical hermeneutic and this is hopefully where it really is going to shine is that we believe that whatever isaiah is prophesying and teaching whatever he's revealing here in a redemptive historical fashion it applies to you and i when i say redemptive historical if you weren't in our biblical theology if you don't come to the klein group if you're not into biblical theology what i'm talking about in terms of redemptive historical preaching is this that the whole Bible moves chronologically through redemptive history. You know, Abraham, Exodus, you know, the conquest, everything we looked at. And that every single period of time has some sort of contribution to the overall plan of redemption. And in that way, every part of our Bibles contributes to Jesus Christ and to His kingdom. The whole Bible... And man, I'll tell you what, I pray Isaiah will magnify this for us. The whole Bible is about Jesus. I cannot say that loudly enough, often 
often enough, clearly enough, because we need it. We don't operate that way. If we did, brothers and sisters, you would have did your devotions this morning out of Deuteronomy. No, 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 you know, understand what I mean by that. Because we're not convinced that when we go to the text of the Old Testament, what we're going to get is Christ. You see? So we're still deficient. I feel it in myself. I literally was praying through this while we were on vacation. I was thinking, man, my view of the Old Testament is so low. Like, I even struggle. Like, I've been conditioned to think in a, you know, New Testament-only type of a way. And it's bad. It's not good for us. And uh, I don't know that I'm going to be the one to correct it all, but I'm just telling you, hermeneutically, we're going to approach it from that redemptive, historical. We're also going to approach it from a covenantal uh, 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 aspect, but most of all, from a Christocentric and biblical approach. That's what we're going to do. But how are we going to do it every day? How are we going to do it every Sunday? Are we going to go verse by verse? Am I just going to be teaching topical sermons every Sunday out of Isaiah with no real exposition? No. I'm going to do both, all, all the above. Sometimes, like next week, Lord willing, I'm going to be doing verses 1 through 9, and it will be essentially a verse-by-verse exposition of verses 1 through 9. So you can get ready for that, right? And, and, and so we're going to go verse-by-verse verse at times. At times, we'll take a whole chapter. So like, for example, chapter 4, I plan to preach all of chapter 4 as one unit because that's what it is. Sometimes we will get one verse out of 20 verses and preach that one verse and allow all the other verses to inform that one verse because that one verse is kind of like the, the crux interpretum. It is the, the, the central issue of the whole context. And so that's, what, that's my job is to find that verse preach that verse, and inform that verse with the whole context. So sometimes we're going to do it like that. And everything... uh, Okay, so here's some practical things. What about small groups? You guys ready? (laughs) I have decided that I am going to uh, continue to be doing fully edited manuscripts. Um, uh, I can't break away from it. I've tried, I prayed, I got all devotional and, you know. It just didn't work for me. I, you know, I, I was writing by hand, you know, a journal. I was getting all, you know, down and earthy and it, whatever. It just didn't work because the power of Logos software to cut and paste <laughs> saves me a ton of work. You know, I heard some of these phenomenal, you know, renowned preachers talking about how they put together, like uh, I think it was Stephen Lawson and MacArthur they were once talking about. And he's talking about how he Xeroxes copies and pastes it in it like, you got cut and paste in, you know, Microsoft. I mean, you don't need to do that. And it's like these guys are convicted if they're typing their sermons. Like, I, I guess I'm not, I don't have that, I, I don't have that conviction. But, I, so I'm going to do fully edited manuscripts. You'll be able to go online, onto our website, download those manuscripts, especially if you're leading a, 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 a small group. You'll be able to follow my outline and get all my points and stuff like that. So, and I hope that will be uh, continually uh, beneficial to you. How, how are we doing on time, guys? Can someone tell me? Do, if you say this, I'll go for another hour. 15 more minutes? That's terrible. Okay. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. 
Isaiah chapter 6 and I tell you, you may want to get the tape recording. Go back and listen to what I'm going to say here about Isaiah chapter 6. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Isaiah. We thank you that you revealed yourself to this prophet. And there's something so marvelous about Isaiah chapter 6 because we encounter Isaiah who is just one of us. He's just a man. He's just human. He's just mortal. And yet he encounters the Holy One of Israel. And Lord, I pray that that is what we're going to do week after week as we come together for this book, is that we will encounter the Holy One of Israel. And I pray that by beholding your glory, beholding your beauty, and by beholding your holiness, that in turn, like Isaiah, you would take the coal, cleanse our lips. That you would make us holy. That you would make us fit. That you would transform us. That you would sanctify us. That you would conform us more and more into the image of your Son, who is the glory of God. And so, Father, I pray Isaiah will have an immensely practical outworking in our lives it will not just be all theoretical it won't all just be historical it won't all just be doctrinal in the sense of high systematics or something but that it will be practical in our hearts the problem with judah is that they do not know the lord they don't seek the lord they don't love the lord and so we pray oh god Use this prophecy, use this material above everything, above everything. Use it to cause us to love you more. Be glorified in all these things. Lord, I confess and admit to you and before everyone here that I am wholly inadequate to handle your word and your, 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 these texts of Scripture because I feel the weight of the duty here and the responsibility and the gravity of the revelation that is contained in this book. And so I seek your help and I ask that you would bless the preaching of this book for your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're not done yet. I want to read this to you. And I want you to just maybe jot down some things and pray about what it is that we're getting. Isaiah chapter 6 is a remarkable chapter. It confronts us with Isaiah's prophetic burden, what we can call his prophetic burden. 
And what we're looking at here is more than that. It's more than just the prophetism of Isaiah. It is, in a sense, what we can call the great meta narrative of Isaiah's message and his whole burden, his calling, his mission, his theology, everything and all that it entails right here in this chapter, chapter 6. It is God's eschatological plan to consummate his kingdom glory. It says in Isaiah chapter 33 that the people of God, their hope was this. You will see the king in his beauty. The burden of Isaiah is that the people will see. That their eyes will be open to the truth, to, to, to reality. I mean, their eyes are filled with all sorts of earthly physical, political, economic things all around them all the time. And what Isaiah is saying is you have not even begun to see the truth because you're not seeing God and His beauty and His glory. That's the burden of Isaiah. Can you imagine? To open their eyes spiritually. That's the whole burden. To add drama to that, like the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, God assures Isaiah, the people will not see. They're going to be blind. They're going to be blind to you. Think about prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, I think it's like verse 11 or something. Everyone's going to be against you, Jeremiah. The priests, the politicians, the kings, everyone. You're not going to be accepted by anyone. You know why? For the same reason that Isaiah wasn't. Because the central message of Isaiah is to herald the message of the Holy One of Israel. And you know what, brothers and sisters? This is what Isaiah is going to do for us, I guarantee it. Is it's going to remind us that we will take a sovereign God, a Calvinist God. We will take a powerful God. We will take a God that is majestic. We will take a God that is all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent. We will take that God, but we will not take a holy God. We will not take a holy God. Because when the holiness of God begins to penetrate, even as Isaiah's own experience reveals, we begin to truly tremble. Because as we see His holiness, we see our lack of holiness. So here in this chapter, God is revealed to Isaiah, borrow Meredith Klein word, in His upper register glory, meaning heaven, highest of heavens, the heaven that is right now veiled to us, God gives Him a glimpse, opens the eyes, lets Him peer in to look upon these things. And those upper register realities are then revealed in the lower earthly visible world through creation and through Israel's institutions as earthly replicas of those heavenly realities. That's what the temple is about. That's what the institutions are about. That's what the altar is about. All of it. This glory vision then has God as the center of it all. He is the central theme of the beatific vision. What does Isaiah say? He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of His robe, filling the temple. So in other words, He is the center gem of it all. And that's what he saw. He saw God erect upon His heavenly throne, the place of absolute loft and exaltation. 
He saw God in his glory presence. And what he saw was he saw the consummate kingdom, the glory of God in his consummate reign. In other words, this is the telos of everything. This is the goal of everything. This is what Israel is not understanding. They're not understanding that God and his kingdom is the universal, all-prevailing, all-impending reality. It's coming. And you know what? What Isaiah saw, 7th century B.C., is exactly what is true right now, at this moment in time. That right now, God is sitting as a king enthroned in his highest heaven and his kingdom glory is coming and his kingdom glory is all that matters. That reality, if it grasps you the way that it grasped Isaiah, I'll tell you what, it'll shoot you out of this church like a missionary and see ya. So long. And then I'm stuck here weeping because I lost more people. But that theophanic vision is enough for Isaiah to say, here I am, O God, send me. Do whatever you want. If this is it, if this is the glory that's coming, if this is the universal reality, if this is the all-prevailing reality that's coming, Assyria can't stop it, Babylon can't stop it, Russia can't stop it, ISIS can't stop it, Islam cannot stop it, nothing can stop it. I was just in Southern California the homeless problem is not going to stop it. Man, that place has changed. I'm driving down the freeway. It's like every other billboard. Pull over, get high, buy pot right here. What? This place is gone. It's like, I'm supposed to take a vacation here? Anyway, I'm not complaining, but this earth is not what Isaiah saw. He saw a time in which the earth will be full of the glory of God. In other words, he was, he was catapulted into a future eschaton where he saw a glory realm so glorious that the whole earth was full of his glory. All his enemies had been subdued. The only thing that was the most dominant reality out of everything that he saw was the glory of God. If you hear me say the word glory about a hundred times in each sermon, sorry, that's just Isaiah. It's all glory. He sees glory. He's talking about glory. So what he sees is the vision of an age to come in a new creational splendor. What Isaiah saw is exactly what John Revelation saw later. They both converge in the glory that they see. But they see it from a different angle with a different amount or to a different degree of revelation. What Isaiah saw in chapter 6 is exactly what Ezekiel saw in chapter 47. But there it is not the smoke that fills the temple. There what fills the temple is the living water that's bubbling up from the foundations of the temple and it rattles the foundations of the temple. And so the Ezekiel finds himself immersed in this living water so much so that he says it got to the point where I had to swim in it and I basically was drowning in eternal life. So what these prophets, no wonder they were so crazy. What these prophets saw was we are headed to a realm of glory beyond your wildest dreams where eternal life will be the all-pervasive, all-immersive reality in which you and I live so that the glory of God will become atmospheric. We'll be dwelling in it. 
We'll be living in it. We'll be breathing it in and out. And Israel is messing around with idols. Think of it. Think of the insanity. Like Jeremiah says, you take a piece of wood, you cut your God out of it, and then you make supper with the rest of the wood. When the king of glory is sitting on his throne, unthinkable, unspeakable, insane. The necessary holiness that Isaiah saw sort of dawns upon him, doesn't it? He sees the Lord high lifted up, and what is the response? Woe is me, and we're going to do a deeper exposition of this, but I can't help but to mention this. Woe is me, he says, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a people with unclean lips. And so what happens is this, is as the smoke begins to fill the temple in a strange and mysterious way, something becomes illuminated to the prophet. You ever been like in a foggy football field or something like that you ever been in a place where the fog is coming you can see it coming i've been there i remember being in big bear once when that happened we were driving and the fog started descending so thick the only way we made it up the mountain that day is we had to stick our heads out of the out of the uh, car and look down for the white line because <laughs> we're on the side of the mountain you know just like follow the line follow, oh you're a little to the right please anyway it's like that Isaiah saw the smoke filling the temple such that he realized he is immersed. Suddenly, he is immersed. And what dawns on him is the illumination that he completely and totally is unfit and unprepared to be in the realm. He doesn't belong. Something has to happen. And that's why he needs a coal from the altar. Brothers and sisters, isn't that beautiful? It says that the angel goes, he takes the tongs, he grabs, a, uh, he grabs one of these glowing precious stones, the, 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 the coal from the altar, he takes it and he cleanses the prophet. And so what we're left with is an impression that what needs to happen in order for the prophet to dwell in the glory realm is there needs to be a radical inner transformation that changes the prophet positionally so that he can now go from one realm to the next. This is Pauline theology. Exactly what Paul is teaching in the book of Romans, in the book of Corinthians, in the book of of, of Colossians. I think of Colossians chapter 1. What did he do? What does he do? He redeems us so that we go from one realm to the next realm, out of the realm of darkness into the realm of his light exactly what's going on here and so the prophet sees his need for atonement consequently only that which is offered on the altar of god can remove our iniquity and in order for anyone israel the prophet don't forget isaiah is an israelite he belongs to the covenant community he belongs to the people of god okay he belongs to judah this applies to him. He needs just as much cleansing as they do. He needs to be right just like they're right. In order for them to achieve God with us, this Emmanuel status, like 
Isaiah, the people of God have to be cleansed, they have to be renewed, they have to be redeemed. And when that goal is finally achieved, I believe what this chapter is saying is when that goal is finally achieved, then the eschaton will come where the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God and we will enter into the spirit and its atmosphere in heaven. And that comes right out of Klein too. Klein's been influencing me quite a bit here lately. And, uh, but, but, but I believe it because just as Paul says that we go from earthly to the spiritual by the transformation, a twinkling, a moment, incorruptible puts on, a corruptible puts on incorruptible, etc., etc. That's what we, we need to be born again of the Spirit so that we're ready to dwell in the realm of the Spirit, getting ready for that. This is what Isaiah is all about. He wants them to see. Isaiah sees the King, the Lord of hosts, which means that he speaks as someone who has seen the eschaton, the reality of the eschaton, brothers and sisters, as someone that has seen the heights of Zion to a people who are blinded to the heavenly tribunal of God. They care about the tribunal of Babylon. What about the tribunal of God? What about His sovereignty, His majesty, His power, the Lord of hosts? Remember, we talked about this last time we were in Isaiah. Remember, it's a title that speaks of God being the leader of His armies. Why are they worried about the armies of their enemies? Don't they know who leads the armies of the people of God? Because they don't see Him in this way, they don't fear Him in any way. And that leads them to a life that is abominable, unspeakable, and reprobate. Such blindness is going to lead to further devastation. Look at the text. Verse 9, he said, Go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep looking on, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Why do I read that? Because that passage is quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 about the fact that the Jews in his day don't understand his parables. And by not understanding his parables, Jesus becomes an Asianic prophet who is prophesying such that the gospel is an aroma of death to death because they are blind. And so what, what Isaiah did historically throughout these decades of his prophetism was ultimately going to be just a mere picture, a flicker of what Jesus would do in the final, as he comes as the final prophet, priest, and king. And so what I'm saying is that Isaiah's prophetic ministry becomes not only prophetic of the future for Judah, but it becomes programmatic for Jesus. You see how it all fits together? See, I could go for another hour about that. But I'll pray so that we can end in a reasonable time. God bless you guys. I'm so happy to be home. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we pray that you would get us ready for this book, get me ready, give me clarity of thought, and give me the vision I need to really rightly exposit your word and to apply it and to implement it in your church. And I pray that for us as a people, that we would be reading this book, that we would be meditating on this book. I, I know that 
I know that in this church, there are tremendous amount of dreadful insights into your word. And I know your people seek you, and I know that they search the scriptures. And so I pray that as we immerse ourselves in this book, that fresh and new horizons of of biblical truth will come dawning upon us in a new way so that our hearts will be changed, our lives will be changed, and our hearts will be more in tune with you than ever. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.